Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 453. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a story we have for you today. And right at the end, we have Mr. JJ Campanella because it is the end of the month. We just have the one story again. I hope you're kind of just liking, you know, I was just talking to Jeremy, actually, a little message on facebook there just you know how we can we're having little kind of trials and well i am little practices of like different ways to kind of present the show and you know different ideas and different thoughts so again we just have one story but what a story main fiction is the non-event by mike carey originally published in masked I'll give you a little heads up about M.R. Carey. He is a writer who, equally at home in a wide range of media, his latest novel, Fellside, is a ghost story set in a women's prison. Its predecessor, The Girl with All the Gifts, was a word-of-mouth bestseller and, get this, soon to be a major motion picture based on his own screenplay. Under the name Mike Carey, he has written for both DC and Marvel, including the critically acclaimed runs of X-Men and Fantastic Four, Marvel's flagship superhero titles. His creator-owned books regularly appear in the New York Times graphic fiction bestseller list. He also has several previous novels, two radio plays, and a number of TV and movie screenplays to his credit. <laughs> How jealous am I? Mike, way to go there. This story is narrated by Rock Manor. Rock Manor has been featured as a voice performer on podcasts such as The Amazing No Sleep Podcast, Pseudopod and Tales to Terrify. He is the producer of Manor House, hosted by Phantom Collector, a horror audio anthology series featured on both iTunes and YouTube. Producers of the Black Tapes podcast cause Manor House Top Notch and best-selling author Brian Keane says Manor House is, like Tales from the Crypt, a really fucking cool, which Rock thinks is really fucking cool. Visit his website at manorhouseshow.com. Big thank you, Rock, for this as well. Uh, just a marvellous narration. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Non-Event by Mike Carey. Pugh, pugh. Ugh, 
Nice to have that gag out of my mouth. Guy thing to take the taste away? Water, you say. Well, if it's all you got, I'll take it. But it's your choice. I'll sing a lot louder and clearer if you give me whiskey. So, you want me to talk about Gallo? Sure you do. And you want to hear about how he came to be lying there with no head on his shoulders. And if I feel any remorse about killing him. Well, you know, I just don't feel much about it one way or the other. The man was an idiot. And worse than that, an idiot who spat while he talked. A pornography addict who liked to talk about his hobby. A man who fell for pyramid selling schemes and wanted all his acquaintances to join the club. A cereal drinker of cheap supermarket beer that made him so flagellant birds fell out of the sky wherever he walked. But nothing in his life became him like the leaving of it. Gallo died classy. I'll give him that. That's why I agreed to come here. I'm making this statement. I'm cooperating with your dumb fuck investigation, even though I know the conviction is a lead pipe certainty whether I talk or not. I'll tell you the whole story about Gallo's death. I just feel like somebody should. The rest, the confession and everything? Yeah, you can have that too. Take it and choke on it, you fuckers. So, to start with, it was Pete's idea. Pete Vessel, this is, a.k.a. Hyperlink. Not Pete Hegg, who is Vessel's brother-in-law. Hegg's deal is converting base metal into live frogs, which, as you'd imagine, is not a power that's in great demand anywhere where sane people gather. Vessel has teleportation powers, and even though they're not as good as the teleportation powers Miss Transit has, say, or even those of Dr. Faze or Little Johnny Blank, they still raise some interesting and suggestive possibilities. Let me spell it out. Vessel's deal is that he can instantaneously appear anywhere where his name is written down. I know, I know. It's like a bad joke. You blank out of reality and reappear inside a fucking mailbox, right? Great party trick. And then you stay there for a good half hour because that's how long it takes Vessel to recharge. Before he came up with that hyperlink name, I suggested Return to Sender, an eponymous boy. <laughs> he didn't laugh. Anyway, Vessel brought me in because I do the whole talking to locks thing. I suggested Nassim Hadid, who goes by a perspective, and George Gruber, the ten of Ren Ten Skin. Then Nassim brought in Cindy Fellows, a.k.a. Guesswork, which I think was her girlfriend at the time. It was a good balance of powers, all things considered. But everything depends on the context, of course. Everything depends on the actual job. The job in this case was a bank vault. The Longs on Oldwich. It's technically Dutch soil by means of some obscure legal switcheroo. So the filthy rich use it as a left luggage locker for all the stuff they don't want to pay UK tax on. Their Krugerands and their diamond necklaces, 
their Fabergé eggs and their bearer bonds. There's a nice concentration of obscene and highly portable wealth. And Vessel, who used to be a banker himself before the endoclasm, had scoped it out pretty well. We met up in his basement, which he's done up okay, which still smells of sour milk, no matter how much potpourri he puts down there, to go over to logistics and sniff each other's dog tags. The basement was a necessary part of the equation because it's lined with lead, which means nobody's going to be reading your lips from five miles off using their X-ray vision. Lead is a nostrum that seems to work against a whole range of superpowers, for reasons nobody has ever been able to explain, but Vessel is friends with Time Slide and Granite Phantom, too, so he'd managed to get the room time-proofed and phase-sealed. Or at least he said he had. You never know how much is bullshit with him. He'd made an effort, I'll say that for him. There was wine and beer and a party plate from Marks and Sparks with little sausage rolls and vol a la vules on it. Everything except massage chairs. Vessel seemed to want to make the planning of the robbery a festive occasion. Whereas mostly they tend to be fairly task-centered affairs. So there was a good atmosphere, as far as that went. But when we ran through the plan, it was obvious it still had a serious flaw. Probably more than one, if the truth is told. But certainly one that kind of jumped up, grabbed you by the collar, and screamed, Serious fucking flaw! We could get into the building, at night when it was empty. We could break the vault, and get our hands on a good proportion of what was in it. With Nassim on board, we could even stow the goods where they couldn't be found until the heat died down, and it was safe to sell them on. But we didn't have a strong guy. None of us. Not even George had the serious offensive capability that would allow us to walk away after the job through the shitstorm of super-powered cops who had come down on us out of a clear sky, bringing to bear such a ridiculous variety of powers that our feet would not touch the fucking ground. We needed, at the very least, the Rainbow Bandit or Ultravox, and preferably one or more of the four Apocalypse Boys— Otherwise, there was no way we were getting out of that vault in units of more than one molecule across. I, I should say here that this stuff hurts me. It hurts me in my heart. I was a career criminal back in the old days, before all this bullshit when all you needed was a crowbar and a helpful disposition. These days... You can't even knock over a post office without Dr. Doom, Lex Luthor, and the marching band of the radioactive zombie death ray commandos on your team. And even then, it's ten to one that one of the really big hitters, like Saint Seraph or the Epitome, will amble along and you'll go to the wall anyway. It's not the endoclasm that's the problem, you know. It's human nature. The endoclasm gave about one in ten people superhuman powers, but most people are scared shitless when microwaves shoot out of their asses, or their chins sprout adamantium bristles, or they wake up one morning lying upside down on the ceiling. They fall apart quickly, burn out in some really nasty superpowered suicide, or else repress their abilities so deeply they effectively dispower themselves. Psychic castration, the experts call it. Two kinds of personality ride the crisis out okay. The deeply criminal 
and the deeply moral, or, as you might say, the walking ids and the walking superegos. And those law and order bastards seem to outnumber us enhanced villains by about a hundred to one. I don't mean supervillains, you understand. I mean good, old-fashioned burglars, bank robbers and stick-up merchants who just happen to have picked up powers during the endoclasm. We're not interested in ruling the world or destroying it or having a big, pointless punch-up with a bunch of twats and tights. We just ply our trade when we're allowed to, do the job and then clock off. So yeah, anyway, we're contemplating the ruin of Vessel's plan, and we're thinking too bad, because it's a nice bank vault, full of all kinds of good stuff, and it would be a pleasant thing indeed to get in there and have a rummage around. Then Vessel said, in case you're wondering about the getaway, I'm thinking we'll use Gallo. There was a blank silence. It was just amusement at first. But then I went right on through to being angry. Seems I was wrong about why Vessel had brought me in. It wasn't because I'm Lockjaw. It was because I used to be friends with Gallo. Gallo? Gruber echoed. He's not good with civilian names. He means the non-event, Nassim said. And he's out of his bloody mind. I agree, I said, getting up. Thanks for the vol of yours, Vessel. But fuck you very much for the rest of it. I'm not galloping in the town with Rizzo Gallo on the next horse. That's for frickin' sure. Good luck with that. Vessel jumped up hastily, making calming downward movements with his hands, so he looked like a chicken that was having trouble taking off. No, listen, Davy, he said. I'm serious. I've thought it through, and it's gonna be fine. Really, just hear me out. If you don't think it will work, then you can walk. I can walk now. I pointed out, demonstrating. But what do you lose by staying one more minute? Vessel insisted, stepping into my way. He was sounding kind of whiny now, and I started to remember all over again some of the reasons why I didn't like him. You listen. You make up your mind. If it doesn't work for you, you're gone. Come on. You owe me that much. I didn't owe him a thing, if the truth is told, and we both knew it. He's brought me in on a job or two, sure, and I've always carried my weight. But that's the sort of fruitless argument where once you get into it, you can end up ripping out each other's teeth with pliers. I prefer to keep the moral high ground, if I can help it. I shrugged, remained on my feet, but stopped heading for the door. Folding my arms, I adopted a so-convince-me stance. And he did. He convinced me, as he explained his plan, by some fluke or intuition, he met all my objections in the order they came to me. By the time he was done, I was thinking, very much to my surprise, that this thing might actually have a chance of working. Well, I'll talk to Gallo, I said begrudgingly. No harm in that, anyway. <laughs> sure. No harm at all. God likes a good laugh now and again, doesn't he? That's what irony is for. 
Gallo was living all on his own in a rat's-ass workman's cottage just outside Luton, the only inhabited building on a condemned row that was short but not sweet. I mean, someone would have had to drop serious money on the place to bring it up to a point where you could describe it as a slum. Right then, it was just four walls and intermittently a roof. Gallo didn't mind much. His needs were modest, and he enjoyed his own company. More to the point, he was scared shitless of anybody else's. The extra-normal affairs people were talking back in the day about giving him a pension to stay away from major population centers. But then the Tories got in again, and the mood swung. They left Gallo to starve on his own time. And that gave me my in, as it were. I pointed out to him that this job would set him up for the rest of his life, he could buy a place in the country, a thousand miles from anywhere. Buy a tent and live on top of a mountain in Tibet. Or out in the Kalahari. I don't know. Anywhere except the ragged edge of fucking Luton. Even a dog deserves better than that. Gallo shook his head slowly, clearly not liking the idea. I don't know, Davy. He mumbled in that sing-song way of his. I mean, I really don't know. I'm doing all right here. I looked around his living room, staring in turn at the two cracked teacups, the sway-backed formica table, the ancient portable TV zebra-striped on top with cigarette burns. I didn't need to say anything. Gallo knew what I was thinking. But it's all right for me, he said, throwing out his arms in what was either a shrug or a plea. I don't miss anything very much. And at least out here, I can't hurt anyone. That's the most important thing. There's nothing much to upset me, but if I do get upset, then nobody gets hurt. Both times he said the word hurt, he lingered on it, almost making it into two syllables. I knew where he was coming from, and I even agreed with him up to a point. There are two kinds of bad jobs, the screw-ups and the slaughterhouses. Worst kind of all is the kind that starts off as the one, and slides into the other. Okay, Rizzo, I allowed. So you're doing nobody any harm. But fuck, you're not doing a damn bit of good to anyone either. You've got all that power stored up inside you, enough to bring a whole city to a standstill, and you're living like a cockroach under a brick. You don't think you deserve a little better, maybe? I mean, who dares wins, man? Specifically, who dares wins a ticket out of this shithole into a nicer shithole with hot water and clean towels and a well-stocked liquor cabinet. I mentioned that last point because Gal used to put it away like a sailor on shore leave and because despite being pathetically happy to see me, he hadn't offered me one of those three cans of lager sitting semi-cool in a red plastic bucket full of water on the floor next to his chair, husbanding his resources, I figured. Gallo rubbed the bridge of his nose, where he used to wear big bottle-glass spectacles, before he gave up the unequal race against his birth defects. He made a non-committal sound. I thought you didn't do this stuff anymore, he hedged. Since, you know, what happened to Kim. It was a low blow, in a way. Gallo breaking the established ground rules to fend me off. I don't talk about my kid and what happened to her when she lost control of her phasing powers. I'd even trained myself out of thinking about it. 
That turned out to be a dumb move. Though, over time, when I opened the wrong drawer and got hit by a photo of her, age nine, blowing out her birthday candles, it took me a second even to remember who she was. I got that good at editing out my own memories, my own feelings. I'd cauterized Kim right out of my fucking mind. Yeah, I said. Thanks for bringing that up, Gallo. You're right. I got out of the blagging habit for a while. Then I got back in again. What the hell, you know? It passes the time. By which I meant it's better than sitting at home with two bottles of whiskey and seeing how far you make it into the second one before you pass out. I don't know, Gallo said again. You don't know what? I demanded, a little testy now. Well, I might let you down, is one thing. I'm not, you know. He shrugged again. I can't control it. When it happens, it happens. But I can't make it happen. Part of me wanted to walk away from this. But the other part, the part that had swallowed Vessel's line and was already figuring out how to spend all that money, was bigger and stronger and a whole lot more devious. Rizzo, I said. Your powers kick in whenever you get upset or scared or nervous or even just surprised. I think I can guarantee that if you go into that bank next Tuesday, one or more or possibly all of those things is going to happen. You don't need to do a thing except turn up. And the beauty of it is, if they nail the rest of us, you're in the clear. Nobody will ever be able to prove you had a thing to do with it. Gallo seemed to like that part. They won't clock me for the inside man, he asked, wanting to hear me say it again. No reason why they should, I said. Size screening is illegal in the EU, so the only people who can finger you are you and us. We'll be in Jamaica, where extradition's just a bunch of sounds you can limbo to, and you'll get a big, fat, freshly laundered check in the post three days later. Or, more likely, the key for a safe deposit box in Switzerland where your share will be waiting for you to claim it whenever you want to. Gallo's eyes missed it up. He was thinking of colonnades of cheap beer, enchanted caverns of porn, his usual low-rent pursuits, writ large and glorious. I felt like a shit pulling this number on him, but in my own defense, I meant every word. I really didn't know the slightest inkling of how things were going to go. I had to hang around a while longer, but I didn't really have to work at it anymore. Gallo was talking himself around now, without any help from me. I let him do it, shook his unpleasantly moist hand, and hit the road. Three days to make it happen. Then the rest of my life to lie back at my ease in some place where rain never falls and tell the story to eager, admiring women with California tans and Garden of Eden wardrobes. Three days wasn't long enough, as it turned out. As soon as he heard that Gallo was on board, Vessel got retrospectively serious about the reconnaissance. He decided he wanted to know which supernormal security from DeLong's had on retainer, as well as the shift rotas at New Scotland Yard. It was good to know who might be coming to the party, and how long it might take them to get there. He wanted to leave as little as possible to chance, a sentiment I could very much get behind. 
So we ended up switching the target date from Tuesday to Wednesday, which sounds like nothing much, but actually contributed significantly to our downfall. Am I talking too fast for you, Flatfoot? I said, contributed significantly. The word you wrote there looks like it has at most six letters. I'm not signing a presci. You understand me? The other change, which made a whole lot of sense in the context of Vessel's master plan, was that we were going to do the job right in the middle of the day rather than at night. That felt weird, I have to admit. As Lockjaw, I usually prefer to have my conversations with deadlocks, bolts, and security systems in the peace and quiet of 2 a.m., when you're generally guaranteed a little privacy. This was going to be a different kind of operation, but I felt like I could handle it. We all felt like we could handle it. Nassim went in at 10 a.m. She'd already opened an account the day before and paid the first quarter's rental on a safe deposit box. She went to the desk now and asked if she could get access to the box and drop off a few items. She held up a little lead-lined case that looked as though it might contain jewelry. They took her down to the vault where a super-powered security guard, it was Tom Tiptree, Telltale, scanned her for weapons or suspicious items, finding nothing at all. The little case was full of necklaces and trinkets, maybe a little cheap for this place, but what does a cop know about jewelry? They let her through. Telltale and another guard, the Iron Maiden, went in with her and stood at a discreet distance while she went to her safe deposit box and opened it. There was nothing inside the safe deposit box except the documents Nassim had left there the day before. One of them was a legal-looking letter, signed by one Peter H. Vessel. There was a blinding flash and a whiff of ozone as Hyperlink, right on cue, zeroed on his name and teleported in. He had a bulky rucksack on his back, and his hands were open in front of him as though he was making an offering. Ten and me were sitting on his right and left palms, respectively, having been shrunk by perspective an hour before to about half an inch in height. She restored us to normal size in front of the astonished faces of the guards, and I punched Telltale out before he'd even got done saying, What the fuck? Ten had a harder time of it with Iron Maiden, who, quite frankly, outclassed him in the smarts department and fought like a gleaming rust-free ninja. In the end, he won on mass, ramping up the density of his metal body until his feet were sinking into the concrete when he moved and his punch was like a slap in the head from a wrecking ball. The maiden went down with serious dents in her chassis. We checked our watches. 10.07, which meant we were well within the margin of error. Vessel got to work, hauling out the other safe deposit boxes and piling them up in front of Nassim. She shrank them in batches of a dozen or so, turning each big heavy steel container into a dinky little thing about the size of a thumbnail. Into her jewel case they went in clattering handfuls. Meanwhile, I sweet-talked the door to the secondary vault, which Vessel sources said was full of bullion. My power is a little weird, if the truth is told. A little, well, analog, soft around the edges. I talk to locks, and they instinctively like and trust me. I can't give them orders, but I can usually persuade them. A little bit of flattery goes a long way, 
and tone of voice is just as important as what I say. It took me three minutes to coax the vault door to open. It was a time lock, so I had a lot of inhibitions about opening up in the middle of the day, so far off the normal schedule. I reassured it that I'd still respect it in the morning, told it all the usual things a lock likes to hear about the quality of its build and the fine balance of its tumblers. And finally, there was a slow-mo, click-clock sound as it opened up for me. By this time, Nassim had finished with the deposit boxes. She zapped the bullion bags, of which there were fewer, and piled them in on top until the case was brimful. Then she miniaturized the contents by another 50% or so and piled in some more. Finally, she closed the case, locked it, checked the seal, which had to be perfect, and gave us the nod. Okay, Vessel said tersely. Ten fifteen. Let's go. In a perfect world, of course, we could all have gone back the way we'd come, by means of Vessel's hyperlink powers. But there's that half-hour downtime to factor in, and the near certainty that we'd be followed all the way to hell and back by whatever super goons the bank and the Met put on our tails. But the plan had allowed for all this. I chatted up the main door of the vault, and it sprung very readily. In my opinion, it had probably been sprung before. We stepped out and headed on up the stairs. There was another guard at the top, but he had a brute force of power of some kind, and Ten walked right over him just as he was starting to hulk up. A clatter from behind us made us all spin round, Ten already pulling back his fist for another juggernaut punch. But it was only perspective. She tripped over a mop and bucket that were just lying there on the stairs, dropping the jewel case, which made a deafening clatter as it bounced back down two or three steps. She retrieved it, gave it a cursory check, and hurried back up to join us. Wednesday. The cleaner was halfway through her shift, and she left that stuff right where she was going to need it again after her break. That was all it took. Funny, huh? How you can be dead and buried and still keep right on walking, not knowing you took the hit. We walked into the bank proper, where the ultra-rich citizenry were conducting their everyday transactions, taking out another million in small change to see them through the weekend, making a down payment on a Caribbean island, stuff like that. This is a robbery, Vessel said commandingly. Nobody move. A mother with two twin girls shrieked and clutched them to her bosom. A fat man gave a strangled sob of terror. An A-list celebrity forgot for a moment that this was real life and stepped out of line to confront us, then caught a warning glance from Tin and stepped right back again. Of course, there were digital sound pickups all over the room that would respond immediately to the word robbery. Also, despite the stern tone, we weren't doing anything to stop the tellers from punching their panic buttons, so there were silent alarms going off all around us. Obligingly, we walked out into the center of the room, well away from the innocent bystanders. All except for Vessel. He went right up to the nearest line of people, unshipped his rucksack, and took a machine rifle out of it. It was, to be honest, the scariest thing I'd ever seen. 
It looked like it had been drawn by Rob Liefold. By the miracle of super speed, teleportation, time manipulation, and dimension jumping, we were suddenly surrounded by heroes. We were expecting them, of course. But Altered State? Beast Man? Telstar? Green Glow and Razor Wire? Cybug and the Zenity? Make a pretty impressive entrance. It truth be told, I pissed my pants. Only slightly, but credit where it's due. These guys were ready to kick our asses all the way to Land's End, and they looked like they could do it without even getting an elevated heart rate. Vessel took them in his stride, though. He just jabbed backwards with the butt of the gun and broke Gallo's elbow with it. That part wasn't in the plan, and it probably wasn't even necessary. Gallo had been standing in line since 10.10 a.m., waiting for us to come up the stairs and the whole thing to kick off. He'd probably been fighting off panic for much of that time, so the likelihood is that his powers would have manifested as soon as he got a good look at the opposition. But Vessel wasn't leaving anything to chance. Gallo howled and crashed to his knees, clutching his injured arm. Then the howl modulated into something else. Something that wasn't sound or sight or fish or fowl or anything human beings have a name for. An invisible energy that curdled the air and rippled outwards from Gallo, if invisible things can do that, to saturate the room in an instant and permeate on through its walls into the wider world, for a mile or more on all sides of us. Things stopped happening. Car engines misfired. Phone calls got disconnected. Card readers on ATM machines became dyslexic. Bic lighters refused to spark. Even the wind died. But these were just side effects. The full brunt of the non-event's terrible power was felt by those of us belonging to the supernormal persuasion. Ten lost two-thirds of his body mass between one moment and the next. He staggered and almost fell as he changed back in the flesh, screaming out a breath that was now too long for his altered lungs. The Zenity crashed even more painfully into reality, his liminal forms coalescing into one with a sound like a flag cracking in the wind. He groaned and crumpled to the ground in a heap. Green Glow's flames guttered and died. Beast Man shed all of his fur in a second and stood before us stark naked, conclusively answering the question about his sexual equipment. Altered state turned from cobalt blue to ordinary flesh tones, made a sound like a hamster being stepped on, and felt neatly on top of the Zenity, all of which left Pete Vessel holding the only gun in the room and facing a clutch of heroes who were suddenly powerless. This is how it should have gone, then. We should have corralled the impotent fuckers into a corner of the room, backed out through the door where guesswork was waiting with the van, and vanished into the sunset to the tune of a humorously twanging banjo. What we lost sight in all this, of course, was perspective. Gallo's ripple wave went through her, too. And while we were all watching the heroes dropping like autumn leaves, she lost control of the contents of the jewel case. Sure, it was lead-lined and therefore impermeable to Gallo's null wave, but the lining had broken open in one corner when she dropped it on the stairs. Just a tiny crack, but it was enough.
fifty bags of bullion and close on four hundred steel deposit boxes, expanded to full size in half a heartbeat. It was like a fountain, except that a fountain doesn't weigh two and a half tons, and it doesn't explode outwards at Mach two in big, hard, sharp-edged pieces. Nassim caught one of the boxes in the face as it sprang back to full size. It punched her off her feet, and she hit the floor hard, her head impacting the tiles with a sickening crack. The mother with the twins went down under the bullion bags, still trying to shield them with their own body. It was impossible to tell how much weight landed on top of them. They just disappeared from sight in an avalanche of glittering gold. The fat man got a deposit box slammed into his chest and fell backwards, pole-axed. The movie star was pulped by a cascade of the damn things and got a death scene more visually impressive than anything he'd ever managed on screen. It was all over in a second, and we were left staring, open-mouthed, at the carnage. There was an appalled silence that was absolute except for a patter of blood on stone from away to my left. I resolutely didn't turn my head to look. Then the screams and the sobs started up from all around. Okay, Vessel said in a strangled voice. Nobody make a razor wire gave a wordless yell and threw himself at Vessel, more by instinct than anything else. Vessel pressed down on the trigger and the gun spat staccato fire. Razor wire was chopped to pieces in midair. Nobody move, Vessel bellowed more authoritatively. Nobody fucking move. He looked around at us wildly, desperately. Davy, Nassim, Gruber, pick up those bags and drag them out to the car. None of us made a move. Nassim, because she was unconscious on the floor, with blood pooling underneath her fractured skull, George and me, because we couldn't have made our legs work right then if God himself had leant down out of heaven and given us an order to quick march. Vessel, George said inanely. Oh my God, Vessel, look what happened. He was staring at Nassim, and I saw tears running down his cheeks. The job's not finished yet, Vessel spat. Let's go, let's go. There was a distant wail of sirens. I don't think we're going anywhere. I said. A great weight of exhaustion and misery hit me like a bag of bullion to the back of the head. It was the kids. I think it was, anyway. On Tuesday, they wouldn't have been there, and I wouldn't have seen them get buried. Something inside of me wouldn't let go of that image as much as I wanted to. I don't think we're going anywhere, Vessel. Drop the gun said Telstar, grimly, and give yourselves up. One of Zenity's other selves has healing powers. You have to let him work. She had a point, as far as that went, but it was going to take a lot more than throwing our hands in the air and saying, Comrade! I held out my hand to Vessel. Give me the gun, Pete, I said. He pointed it at me instead. The job's not over, he repeated his eyes wild and his teeth bared in a snarl. We're walking out of that door with as many bags as we can. Ten slammed a deposit box into the side of Vessel's head and dropped him. 
Telstar went for the gun at the same time as I did, but I got to it first, and she skidded to a dead stop as I swung it up to cover the heroes. Easy, I said. You just stay back there. There's something I've got to do. I found Gallo in among the wreckage, half buried. His breathing was loud and harsh, like a broken bellows. There was blood trickling out of his nose and the side of his mouth. Davy, he quavered, his voice weak and ragged. Did anyone get hurt? I nodded solemnly. A lot of people got hurt, Rizzo. Kids and all. A lot of people. You think you can turn your powers off? His face took on a distant look for a moment or two as he concentrated. Then he shook his head. No, he said. Too scared. And it hurts too much. I have to be quiet. By myself to make it stop. He noticed the gun in my hands for the first time. He stared at it in total mystification for a moment, as though it was a copy of the sound of music he inexplicably found in his porn stash. Then he looked up at me, and we sort of understood each other. Oh, Gallo said. I'm real sorry, Rizzo, I said. I shouldn't have dragged you into this. He shook his head wordlessly. I don't know if he was disagreeing or if he just meant it wasn't worth talking about. I started to explain about Zenity and the healing thing, but I think he got the broad idea without needing to know the details. I'm scared, he said. I'm really scared. I don't want to see it coming. Close your eyes, I said. He closed his eyes. Now, count backwards from a hundred. Uh, a uh, hundred. The gun was on full automatic. At that distance, it turned his head and shoulders and upper torso to paste. <laughs> That's the meat and potatoes, isn't it? Armed robbery, assault, murder. Anything else you want? Feel free to add it on. Won't make any difference at this stage. We worked with the heroes to excavate the survivors from under the bullion bags and deposit boxes. Zenity did his miraculous thing, and most of them were okay again. The woman with the twins, the fat man, even Nassim. The movie star stayed dead, though, and so did Gallo. Even miracles have limits. And it turned out the guard on the stairs, who Ten had trampled down, was dead too. So there you go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even if everything had gone according to plan, we'd still have had blood on our hands. Look at us, eh? The endoclasm turned us into gods, and all we do is play cowboys and fucking Indians. I reckon we deserve what we get. Most of us, anyway. I feel a little bit sorry for the likes of Gallo, who don't want to play, but get sucked in anyway. That's all I've got to say. You better put the gag back on now and lock it tight. Otherwise, I'm going to start sweet-talking those manacles, and you'll have a jailbreak on your hands. This is the transcript? Okay, somebody get me a pen. I'm all yours. Fuckers. There you go. Big thank you to Mike for that uh, just amazing story. And Rock, thank you so much. Listen, please go and see The Girl With All The Gifts. It's in cinemas now. You just check out, go on Google, check out where it's at in your local area and go and see it. Wow, man, how cool is that? Mike, what can I say? A big thank you. Thank you so much, and good luck with all your kind of endeavours and adventures, and hopefully we'll get you back on the show as well. Big thank you to Jeremy for kind of grabbing that one from your hands, Mike. <laughs> and Rock, what can I say? Big thank you, sir. Thank you so much. There's links to all Rock shows as well there as well. Thank you very much. Next up is then the, the man himself. Step up to the mic, sir. Mr. G.G. Campanella. Greetings and revelacious evolutions, my cryotonically super amalgamated listeners. And welcome to this September 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this epigenetically transient science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. All right, kitties, kidlets, and kittens. This is going to be an unusual podcast tonight. Insofar as I am going to essentially update you on one story and then go off in a strange direction. You may find that direction a flight of fancy or a completely stupid waste of your time. I leave the choice up to you. However, the overall theme tonight is evolution, and I'm starting the night with a story of macroevolution and selection. And the story is also an update on something that we had talked about previously. You may remember months ago when I reported that the Tasmanian devils were in trouble as a species. The problem? A virus which causes cancer was being passed from one devil to another. How? Well, because they are ferocious, nasty beasts who continually fight each other and wound each other, they have been passing this along. 
The cancer cells and virus grow deadly tumors on the face and mouths of the aggressive marsupials. Because devil facial tumor disease, DFTD, has been observed in almost all known populations and is nearly 100% fatal, epidemiological models have suggested that the most infected populations are now facing extinction. It's changed. Well, that has changed. On August 30th, in Nature Communications, Dr. Andrew Storfer of Washington State University published genomic evidence to suggest that Tasmanian devils are evolving resistance to devil facial tumor disease. Storfer says, quote, It's such an important finding. We suspected that the devils would evolve resistance to the disease. It was really exciting to see that this hypothesis was actually correct, unquote. Storfer and colleagues scanned the genomes of 294 devils from three locations across Tasmania, examining tissue samples collected both before and after the emergence of the devil facial tumor disease in those areas. The researchers identified two genomic regions that showed evidence of positive selection based on shifts in allele frequencies before and after the DFTD arrival, and they observed parallel changes in the same chromosomal locations in animals from all three populations. The researchers also showed that of the seven genes in the identified region, five of them are orthologous to genes in other animals that are known to play roles in the immune system or cancer. There's an interesting word for you, orthologous. Orthologous means that those genes are conserved and have the same structure, in this case, as those genes in other animals to help make them immune to disease. Storfer also said, quote, the specific genes identified in our study are likely not the only ones that confer tumor resistance to the devil. In the wild, resistance will evolve, and I think we're going to see lots of different genes evolving, unquote. Storfer's methodology covered about one-sixth of the Tasmanian devil's genome. His group plans to take a much deeper look at the genomes of just a few individuals that show an interesting response to the disease. Storfer and his colleagues are currently using cell culture to explore the functions of those genes. Another active area of the research is examining whether the genetic variants identified in the study could also confer resistance to a second transmissible cancer recently found in Tasmanian devils. And that's called Devil Facial Tumor Disease 2. Storfer says, quote, DFTD2 appears to be completely unique in a genetic sense from the original devil facial tumor disease. At the moment, we don't really understand how widespread it is or what its mortality rate is in Tasmanian devils. However, this does give us some hope that there will be some adaptations to both of the tumors in the future, unquote. Okay, before we go on, I just want to remind you how evolution took place in the Tasmanian devils. They did not magically change because they were being killed by a disease. The devils that are surviving are the ones who carry resistance genes to the virus slash cancer and are able to reproduce to engender new generations of animals who are also resistant. The non-resistant animals died and did not reproduce and are gone from the gene pool. That resistance arose because of mutations and genetic variability in the devil populations. Genetic diversity is very, very important. If 
Tasmanian devils were as genetically similar as the clone-like Cavendish banana trees, which are being killed across the globe by a fungus because they are all the same and they all lack resistance, then the devils would be just as doomed as those poor nanner trees seem to be. All right, on to my flight of fancy. In the last several months, Niantic's Pokemon Go has exploded across the gaming scene. It's encouraged children and adults to go out into the real world and catch them all. Some folks, like one of my friends, John, who is an avid fisherman and naturalist by profession, hate the phone game and think it ruins children for looking at the actual natural world and appreciating the wildlife that abounds around them. Yes, there is wildlife even in New Jersey. Other folks like me find the game a godsend for getting their kids up and away from computer and game consoles and out into the sunshine and fresh air. I have seen kids, often strangers I suspect, meeting in public places such as parks and outside town halls or libraries talking about the game and interacting in real life. Now there's something that you will never see with even the best uh, massive multiplayer game online. For those of you not familiar with Pokemon or Pokemon Go, it is simple enough to be explained in a couple of sentences. Pokemon, which is short for Pocket Monster, was originally developed for the Game Boy back in 1990 and sold by the Japanese company Nintendo. Nintendo eventually created a media franchise worth billions of yen that included an unceasing number of television shows and console games and merchandise. The Pokemon TV and game universe revolves around human trainers who catch a multitude of mythical creatures. I think there's like over 700 at last count. And the trainers snare the Pokemon in special Pokeballs. These are uh, balls that are about the size of a baseball that are apparently dimensionally transcendent inside of them, like Doctor Who's TARDIS. The Pokeballs are tossed at the wild beasts, and they draw them up inside for long-term storage. The humans then instruct the beasts how to fight against each other in, well, sometimes brutal, gladiatorial-like games at Pokemon gyms. Pokemon Go is a phone app that allows players to catch various Pokemon in virtual incarnations that are superimposed on the real world, Players can wander in backyards, parks, malls, their own home, and catch Pokemon, and train them, and finally pit them virtually against each other at gyms scattered throughout their area. One of the aspects of all the Pokemon games and the television shows is the ability of the Pokemon to quote-unquote evolve. During intense training or during battles at Pokemon gyms, many of the Pokemon can evolve into forms that will allow them to better survive the harsh conditions into which they've been thrust. In terms of gameplay and story construction, Pokemon evolution is brilliant and allows continual change in how the various beasts can respond to each other and their trainers. However, in terms of science, the term evolution applied to Pokemon causes many evolutionary biologists to start foaming at the mouth and gibbering. 
The problem with calling the physical slash morphological alterations of Pokemon evolution is that it cannot be defined by that term at all. As with our furry friends, the Tasmanian devils, the change of evolution does not happen to individuals. Whether it occurs over a short time, as has been demonstrated by bacteria, or a long period of thousands or millions of years, evolution occurs in populations. This may seem like a subtle difference, but it's not. Evolution itself does not change organisms. The altering environment changes organisms by putting fitness pressure on them to survive and reproduce. If the environment never changes, then the organism does not evolve because its reproductive fitness never changes. However, if the world around an organism alters, it's usually only the physical type that can best reproduce under those circumstances that sees the future. Again, like our resistant Tasmanian devils. The organism that was not able to reproduce because it was eaten by predators or was not immune to a new strain of virus goes the way of all extinct species. I've been told by serious game heads, I know, that the origin of the original Pokemon Go game itself comes from the lead developer's insect-collecting hobby, so he obviously had metamorphosis in mind when he was developing the game. Remember that when caterpillars turn into butterflies, they metamorphose. We don't call that evolution. That that metamorphosis is much like the Pokemon do as they change form. But the Japanese term for the butterfly changing is dapi, which indicates a shedding of the skin or molting. That's good for insects, but not great for non-insect Pokemons. As an example of a non-insect Pokemon, there is Charmeleon. For those of you who do not know them, a Charmeleon can be described as a large crimson lizard with an aptitude toward producing fire. The Charmander is a weaker, apparently immature version of the Charmeleon, and the Charizard is a larger and apparently more adult version of the Charmeleon. The lizardy Pokemon Charmeleon isn't a pupa or chrysalis stage between Charmander and Charizard. The Charmeleon stage is not reached by Charmander by shedding a carapace or anything. It is a seemingly immature or juvenile stage in a continual growth process. Another Japanese word for metamorphosis or transformation is henshin. Now, henshin is also the term used in Japanese for the mighty morphing power rangers and what they do. Also, it's used for the robot life forms that we call transformers. So it's possible the writers of Pokemon decided to use the term shinka, which means to evolve or progress, thinking it would be better suited and more apt for transforming animals, as well as less likely to get them sued by the Power Rangers or the Transformer people, who might not relate the Pokemon changes to their own superheroes and shape-shifting robots very well. I've been told by people with more Japanese skills than I do that the very best word for metamorphosis in the language is actually the word hentai. And that is a bit of a problem if you know the word. It is thought by most to mean perverted or pornographic, but the literal meaning of hentai, it actually has a biological meaning, is body change, with a connotation of kind of ambiguity or yuckiness or oddness. Obviously, since that loaded word has come to have many other connotations in and out of Japan, 
the developers of the Pokemon game might have wanted to avoid it, even if it was used in the absolutely proper context. So again, Shinka, the word for evolve, may have just worked out better for all involved. Okay, so those anecdotes about the writers and publishers of the Pokemon games are probably the best reasons that Evolve got used in Pokemon. So when my son said, I just evolved a Pikachu into a Raichu, I corrected him and responded with, don't use the word Evolve, that's wrong. My son then asked an excellent question. Well, if you don't want me to say Evolve, what should I say? I hesitated just a moment before responding with, say, mutate. My nine-year-old looked at me thoughtfully. Mutate? He echoed. Yeah, mutate, I responded. I see mutants on Doctor Who and the X-Men all the time, but what does that really mean? He shot back at me. Well, it means that there's a change in your genes when you come from your father and mother that made you physically different from the rest of the population. Uh, but that's when you're born, right? Well, yeah. Well, then how are Pokemon mutating after they grow up? I thought for a second. Maybe there are somatic mutations caused by the environment, like some types of cancer. Somatic what? Mutations that occur in your body after you're grown, after you've been born. So Pokemon evolution is like cancer? No, no, no that's not what I meant. Um, how did you turn the Pikachu into a Raichu? My son thought for a moment. I exposed him to a thunderstone. That caused him to, ev I mean, mutate into a Raichu. So you exposed him to a special type of radiation that altered the genome of his somatic cells, and he mutated into another organism. Yeah, but you always get a Raichu from a Pikachu. It's not like cancer. Isn't that caused by random damage to the DNA? Can't, like, anything happen with random damage? Impressed by my son, I responded, Yeah, that's right. We can't be talking about just random genomic changes caused by the environment. There has to be more of an explanation here. That question has lain incubating in the back of my mind for months. Now it seems strange to contemplate something as silly as how the evolution of Pokemon occurs. But as anybody who has ever been a fan of any book or movie or TV show that steeps itself in mystery can tell you, sometimes you just want an answer that makes logical sense. And it wasn't until reading a recent novel by the futurist and SF writer Neil Stevenson that I actually came up with an answer to the Pokemon evolution problem. The book that I read is called Seven Eves. As with all Neil Stevenson novels, it is quite long and broken into multiple parts. The first part of the book concerns an apocalyptic event that dooms the Earth to a world-class level of extinction. I don't need to describe that event since it is secondary to the point I will be making, and I don't want to ruin the excellently plotted book for anybody. Let's just say that most people on Earth die in Stevenson's novel, and that the second half of the book deals with what happens with those humans who survive and are tasked with rebuilding the Earth. Again, I will go into no details except for the following, which is what triggered my Pokemon epiphany. One of the tasks of the surviving humans is to repopulate the world with animals. There is some difficulty in this because 
they are left with lots of genomic DNA information on computers, but very little in terms of actual genetic material. They are forced to use those genomic sequences and advanced genetic engineering to reconstruct species as closely as they can. In fact, they generate felid and canid species, which are not quite the original wild dog and wild cat species from old earth. And because they want to ensure that their new animals endure the altered environment on the earth, the human survivors hack the animals' genomes in a very special way. Epigenetics is the relatively new branch of biology that studies genomic changes that occur in response to the environment around an organism. Gene expression is turned on and off during an organism's lifetime, presumably to aid in survival. And those genetic changes can even be passed down to offspring to help future generations as well. Much of your so-called junk DNA, as they call it, actually performs important roles in the functioning of cells by regulating meta-expression of genes. Now imagine if you had a complete understanding of a genome and could program a species to alter gene expression epigenetically for the better whenever it was overtly stressed or its environment became too challenging. That is exactly what the survivors of the Holocaust in Stevenson's book did. Over half a century ago, Conrad Hale Waddington introduced his model of development. He depicted the process in a differentiating organism as a ball rolling down a landscape of bifurcating valleys and ridges, with each valley representing an alternate developmental path. Just as a ball may roll from valley to valley until it reaches the bottom of the landscape, a cell may progress from one developmental alternative to another until it reaches its full differentiated state. What Waddington did not know was that epigenetics existed and could give that ball a push down another pathway of development, that even in fully developed organisms, at the end of their developmental pathways, further change could still be programmed in. The DNA code itself for the organism is not changed at all, not a single base pair. Again, epigenetics changes the organism by changing which genes are turned on and off. Getting back to Neil Stevenson's book, rather than try to sequence and breed a new subspecies of wolf for a particular environment that would breed true, the survivor's approach was to produce a race of canines that would, over the course of only a few generations, become coyotes or wolves or dogs or something that didn't fit into any of those categories, depending on what worked best. The canids would all start with a similar genetic code but different parts of the code would end up being expressed or suppressed depending on circumstances. In short, these animals were programmed to quote-unquote go epi if their environment altered enough to test them and physically mutate them as adults on the fly to survive under all manner of circumstances. Of course, a light bulb went off in my head when I read Stevenson's words. That was it. Pokemon don't evolve. Pokemon don't simply mutate. Pokemon go epi. It explains just about everything going on in the Pokemon universe. When do Pokemon actually quote-unquote evolve into different life forms? 
Here's a short list to remind Pokemasters and explain to those who know nothing of the Pokemon universe. So when do they change? Well, first, Pokemon will change when challenged in a gym battle with physically stronger Pokemon and they become severely stressed. Second, they will change during training when overtly strained to the point of exhaustion. Third, they can change to alternate forms when they are not stressed and actually happy with their surroundings. Apparently being happy is an environmental trigger that is just as important as stress in Pokemon. Another, as my son pointed out with Pikachu, they will change when exposed to exogenous radiation from exotic matter. The radiation from various stones may even cause diverse epigenetic expression, leading to a variety of morphotypes. The best example of this is the Pokemon Eevee, which can epigenetically alter into at least eight different forms depending on what environmental factor comes into play. For example, exposure to water stones radiation induces epigenesis into Vaporeon. Using a Thunderstone will get you the Jolteon form. A Firestone will get you the Flareon form, and so on and so on. Finally, rain, cold, wet, high heat, icy conditions, a member of the opposite sex with that species, or even magnetic fields can trigger an epigenetic event in Pokemon. Pokemon are just naturally inclined to extreme survival, and their abilities to change are based on their response to their environments. Now, since they live in an alternate fictional dimension, it's unclear whether Pokemon naturally evolved with the epi ability or whether they were part of a breeding program much as described by neil stevenson on his post-apocalyptic earth however in the end it really doesn't matter since the result is the same that's all for me for now as always take care keep cheering on those tasmanian devils watch where you're going while playing pokemon go and i hope i've inspired some of you until next time this is jim campanella Jim, sir, what can I say? I've just taken over the mic again. Come on, get on, get on, get on. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are a star, Jim. Thank you so much. Well, that is the end of the show. Now, just before I go, hopefully, hopefully we're going to have a show next week. But my computer that I can record this on is an iMac. And it is, let me just, have I got a date? Can I give us a date from it? Let's just see if I, it is old now. You know, I think we're talking, let's have us just see what this, oh, 2008. <laughs> 2008, man. Oh, so it's getting, it's getting, she's, she's getting worn out. And I'm intending to, I don't know, I was going to say bite the bullet and buy it, but that's impossible to be quite, I can't afford that. So I'm going to have to like wipe it, but I'm using old software. Do you know what I mean? I'm using kind of on the Mac, Adobe edition for the Mac and to record this actual show. And I've got a copy of it, you know what I mean? And but you go to Adobe edition, it's actually hard to kind of travel around their website. Now I can only see as if it looks like you just hire the the software and it's a fortune, man. God, you know what I mean? Just ridiculous. It was a fortune that when I paid for this, you know what I mean? And I've had it about three or four, 
five years out. God, it might even be more. But anyways, it was a fortune then, you know what I mean? But I bit the bullet and bought it. And now I kind of, I want my money's worth. I wanted the last, you know, the lifetime of the show. So I've got this copy of it and I'm hoping, oh, I just hope it all works, you know what I mean? I hate doing this kind of scorched earth thing, you know what I mean? I did it on my laptop, got a little laptop as well, and it's just hideous, man, you know what I mean? I've got a print like a, a wireless printer and trying to find the stuff for that and every oh man, it's just like, oh, I hate, I, you get to an age. You get to an age, I swear to God, you get to an age where you just want it to work and you just, you can't be bothered to learn it. When I first, honestly, when I first started podcasting, I was jumping in, you know what I mean? It was a new thing and I loved it. Mm, not so much now, it's just like hard work. <laughs> Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sorcian Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.